we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we're continuing our weekly series with various interesting and thoughtful people. We usually talk about science and medicine and COVID topics, but if there's, that might all be a starting point for things and we can go off topic and, and wherever the, the we lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news, N-E-W-S, forward slash pulse. We've changed the, the website, so it's americaoutloud.news. I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Craig Wax. Dr. Wax has been a family and sports physician for 25 years. He's an advocate for patients' individual rights. Dr. Wax has hosted a New Jersey radio show for 20 years. He served on the National Physicians Council on Health on a Congressional Policy Subcommittee and has been on the board of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Wax has also been active for more than two decades in the field of medical economics and publishing papers and serving on the editorial board of the journal Medical Economics. And his website is healthisnumber1.com. So, Craig, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately? Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Rish. It's a pleasure indeed to be here. I've had the privilege of having you on some of my radio shows, uh, podcasts, and video podcasts. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to continue the dialogue, uh, especially with uh, your listeners here. So, you know, with the last three years, um, you know, of, of COVID and the, the, the vast ill reaction to everything, uh, I think one of the takeaway points that we can each take away, no matter what you agree or disagree with or think or, or what have you, is that, you know, we're all generally fairly unhealthy um, if we don't have the right habits and things in place. And one of the things that I've stressed throughout my 25-year career is trying to help people find health and stay there. And that, to me, is one of the most important things we can do because what, you can't change others necessarily, but you can change yourself. You know, it's like the old joke, you know, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? You know, only one. one the but the light bulb has to want to change, right, of course. Yeah, precisely. So um, I really do well with patients and uh, listeners who, you know, want to change and want to, you know, uh, find their best health. And, uh, you know, we found, especially, uh, you know, over the last three years that, you know, being uh, locked in our homes, uh, huddling down, you know, eating convenience foods, watching Netflix, um, getting no sunlight and getting no fresh air, um, no exercise, you know, potentially not drinking water, drinking other concentrated sugary beverages and what have you, were really the wrong thing to do for, for all of us. And, you know, from a public health perspective, which I know we've talked about, you know, on some of my um, podcasts and things that you've been kind enough to be with me on, uh, it's important to, you know, to self-determine, to, to make a plan. Uh, and I think that one of the best ways to do that 
is, is to pair yourself up with a family physician, internal medicine physician, a pediatrician, or somebody in what, you know, what they're kind of calling as an amalgam primary care and um, developing a, a trusting relationship. And I, I kind of kid people, you know, when they come to my office, you know, when I'm trying to set an expectation of what, of what kind of relationship we're going to have, you know, because we have a, a great feature at our office, you know, somebody calls and we answer the phone. So, you know, it all starts with human contact and, you know, uh, a yearly physical, for example, and some appropriate screening testing, answering patient questions, patients answering my questions, and, you know, developing a trusting relationship, because there will be times when people will call, you know, from deep in a hole saying, help, you know, I'm stuck down here, get me out. And I'm like, okay, here's the best idea for you to climb out yourself. And that, to me, you know, makes a big difference. Well, so I facetiously refer to the last three years as the COVID-25. It's a statement about weight for people who don't think long. As opposed to the freshman 15 or something. That's right. Um, But I already have a problem in seeing that patients are going to trust their doctors when those doctors have been telling them, screaming at them to get COVID vaccinated or you'll die. You know, that's what patients, my wife included, gets this all the time with her doc. She's been going from primary care doc to primary care doc, finding one who won't even today say, well, why haven't you been vaccinated? You know, you could die. You know, they are yeah. still pushing the, you know the, the fear porn. Patients, patients are not children. Um, they don't do well with ultimatums. You know, they, they vote with their feet and what have you. And Unfortunately, you know, I'm just going to put a number on it. Maybe 80% of our entire profession has been led astray by, you know, so-called trusted entities, you know, the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the, you know, um, all of the um, initial soup that we've been thrust into government-wise and organized medical and pharmaceutical complex-wise that it's important to find a physician that's like yourself, that is gregarious, constantly seeking truth and willing to change when you've made an error. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that I think is important. And when someone comes to my office, sometimes I joke and I say, you know, well, I'm kind of like a medical spouse, you know, honey, you really need to get a colonoscopy or sweetie, (laughs) did you get your mammogram? Or, you know, you really should get your cholesterol and your sugar checked. It wasn't so good last time. So, you know, I mean, I kid around, but that's the relationship that I enjoy with my patients. And, you know, thousands of them enjoy it with me, you know, maybe perhaps not all of them. You're right. I mean, uh, I had a physician like that. Unfortunately, he just died a few weeks ago. Not COVID. Oh, sorry. Um, But he was great quiet but every bit just like you've described um and did what was right for patients in his wisdom which was outstanding his clinical wisdom not on all of the forced fed um pieties that that doctors are 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 being you know compelled to do because their practices have been bought off by hospital chains and and group medical practices and things like that that has that has stifled individual treatment for for forced um you, you know uh, protocol treatments that that are not individualized and 
it's too bad. Like one it's size really... fits all. That's the one problem. One size fits all. Everything one size fits like none. When I'm browsing right. for hats, yeah, when I'm right. browsing for hats, if it says one size fits all, it doesn't fit my head. <laughs> right, right, right. So and it doesn't fit your patients either. That's right. So, um, you know, I think that it's it's difficult that physicians are too scared to do what you're suggesting by and large it's only independent ones and there's relatively few uh independent ones like you and and like my doc was um who are able to withstand the the economic forces of these practices coming in and telling them if you don't join our our group practice we're not going to refer any patients to you we're going to put you out of business sure well i think i think it makes some very very good points uh dr rish um, and we've seen it time and time again with the, the government takeover of medicine over the last 70 years, you know, from Medicare and Medicaid in 1965 to the HMO Act of 1972 to MTALA, which forced physicians to be tethered to, to hospital ERs um, all the way through HIPAA. You know, everybody thinks of it as a privacy act, but it's actually a disclosure act. So it's a privacy stealing act. Um all the way up through, you know, what I call the Unaffordable Careless Act of 2010, which then final, you know, final uh, uh, stake through the heart there. And then MACRA of what was that, 2015, 2016. I remember being in D.C. protesting that one with other thoughtful physicians with the halls of Congress. Um, having said all of that, um, the one way to get out of it is sort of like the uh, Ayn Rand Atlas shrugged, you know, when it's a force majeure, basically you just leave the system and physicians are starting to do that in droves and patients are too, because patients want more and they deserve more. I mean, when they say, oh, here's my insurance card or here's my you know, government card or something. And, you know, hey, I deserve everything and I don't deserve to pay anything. And I want it now and I want it for free and I want it to satisfy or I'm not going to give you a good grade on Facebook. So a lot of patients have grown past that to realize that if they pay a physician directly and they've called it direct primary care, direct specialty care, direct care, that not only can you save yourself and and enjoy a relationship with a physician that's trusting and deep and potentially longitudinal or long? Um, you can also save money. Like for example, um, if you look at a bill from say a general surgical procedure, it could be upwards of twenty thousand dollars, which is primarily air fees and hospital facility fees and you know fees for fees reasons. Um, if you shop directly, like at Surgery Center of Oklahoma, surgerycenterok.com with uh, Dr. Uh, G. Keith Smith, um, a uh, right. an anesthesiologist colleague of mine. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you can get that same surgery for between 3500 and 5000 So it's literally less than a quarter of all of the air fees that all of the city hospitals, uh, you know, charge. So the other thing is, too, there's different ways of doing a direct care practice. So one is, is paying per incident. You know, when you need something, you pay for the time that it takes to get that something. And that's, you know, called per incident or per visit. Um, And then there are 
what they call retainer practices. Now, there's different kinds of those. So if you'll give me a moment to talk through those. So everybody that I meet usually thinks of, well, if I've got to pay for a practice, you know, they're going to take my insurance, they're going to take my co-pays, and they're going to charge me this huge multi-thousand dollar a year fee to, you know, for concierge service. You know, they often use the word concierge medicine. And there's actually big players in that business. I mean, Procter and Gamble bought MDVIP, which was probably the biggest um, corporate version of this. Well, there's a scaled down version, which I think works very well. And it gives physicians their independence back and patients their independence and respect back. And, you know, that's what I was calling about direct care. And what that tends to be a retainer model. So instead of multi thousands of dollars plus insurance, plus copay, plus bills, plus aggravation, it's, it could be anywhere from 50 to $125 a month for sort of an all-you-can-eat buffet sort of care, where you can leave your checkbook and your credit card and your co-pays at home, and just know that when you call the physician, they and their office staff will be readily available to you, I mean, within reason, of course, um, to answer your needs and hopefully um, to do some preventative work, which is something that I stress at my office. Everybody in my office leaves with a lab slip and a plan and a follow-up because, you know, losing people to follow up, it just goes bad for everybody. But it's been said many times and many ways, but I think it's best said, you know, we don't plan to fail, but we fail to plan. So at my office and others like it, we we make a plan with the patient and um, usually do pretty well, have good outcomes. Well, so, you know, I've been a part of the wellness company for uh, over a year now, and that was our aim also. And, but, but really, congratulations. What, what's, a, what's apparent about this is that most everyday medical care is relatively low cost and can be managed by any of these economic schemes. The insurance is really more properly relegated to catastrophic care. And the big cuts of insurance premiums is almost entirely, the great majority of it is is for insurance coverage of catastrophic care. And not just 25 or 30,000, but 250,000 or 500,000 or a million dollars and up for things that hospitals pad greatly and, and most of the, these costs are not the doctor's salaries, but they're the hospital charges because the hospitals do have fixed costs and they're also paying for people who don't pay their way because the government isn't paying anymore for indigent people and, and so on. And the hospitals have to make it up that they're seeing they're providing care to those people, too. So those, so that is where the insurance properly fits in. But in the low level of everyday care for average people, one can get away with any of, of these kinds of systems of what you call concierge care or uh, basically membership. There are all different forms of direct care, but but uh, basically membership fees, $100, $150, $200 a month for all you can get. You know, the wellness company also includes supplements um, per month. If you're interested in supplements, that's part of, of their plan um, and the, and doctor visits, telemedicine visits and, and so on, or by paying, uh, I think it's 60 or $70 per visit for what's really about a 15 minute visit as needed. These are still basically affordable kinds of medical care 
that um, and they and they also have negotiated rates for lab testing and and X-ray and stuff like that. These these are manageable, low cost, relatively low cost for middle class people methods for solving most of but not all of their medical issues. And it's the catastrophic well, that you're still stuck with by insurance. Right. Well, you, you were talking about insurance, you know, via ACA, you know, the so-called Affordable Care Act. I call the Unaffordable Careless Act because it was unaffordable. It was carelessly put together and it's just an act. I mean, you know, they don't care. So but you wind up with a thirty thousand dollar prepaid plan that includes prepaid healthcare profiteering, um, government control, and a free physical. So to me, it's just, it's right. absolutely ludicrous. $30,000. But, but this is also one of, one of the ways that, that one controls the economy of scale by plans that, for example, if you look at the cost of your lab tests, the lab tests that that the, the they want to bill for is tenfold greater than what the plan pays, and they're happy to take the plan amounts. You know whether that's because right. the, the plan is supplying them with a hundred thousand patients or not. I don't know, but basically they negotiate in all of the, this dramatic excess as part of what they would charge un you know uh, unknowledgeable patients without plans that relatively few people are actually doing and the idea of, of connecting to your plan wellness plan or something else is to accomplish those benefits at the same time as paying low-cost membership or direct payments and i think all well, of let's work. let's get away on that on that same note dr rish let's give away some secrets here all so right. when I it wanna, comes I to interrupt just for a second because we've actually oh, sure we've actually run out of time for our first segment so we have to take a pause and so this is a commercial break we're just going to pause for that and then we'll be back very secrets coming secrets coming secrets coming so please stay tuned The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced. These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. 
World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Craig Wax. So we were just about to reveal the big secret of how to manage medical care costs. Go for it. Right. So we thank you, Dr. Rich, for this opportunity. Thank you to all of your all of your listeners and our, our sponsors that make these sorts of things available. Um, so one of the big secrets, in addition to a direct relationship with a primary care physician, a family physician, internal medicine physician, pediatrician, what have you, even a gynecologist, what have you, um, another one is is to use their expertise in purchasing services, whether it's laboratories or whether it's radiology services or pathology services, that a lot of times ind- these independent physicians will have a a beat on what things actually cost. Like for example, if you go to the laboratory and you you go for a test and maybe it's a hundred dollar test. Well, actually the real price is 2250 or the Medicare price is 2735 or some other strange number. It's not the hundred dollar list price. So many times, you can use your physician's expertise to to get those things. And your physician may have actually done some bargaining before you got there and, and arranged some of this. But you can also, as an independent purchaser outside of insurance, go to a laboratory or um, a, a pathology lab or a radiology place and say, you know what, um, I don't have insurance What's your discounted cash price? Because I'll pay you right here, right now, instead of making you go through the billing process and then go through an insurance denial and then fighting that. Rather than pay for your billing and overhead, let me just find out what the test costs. And oftentimes, um, that's what the insurance company would pay anyway. So that's one of the secrets. The other one that you can use is, is you can go to like a laboratory and say, you know what? Um, since you'll take Medicare rates all day long, let me pay the Medicare rate that they've bargained you down to. So rather than that $100 rate, let me pay the 2733 or whatever the number is. And many times, many of these healthcare vendors will say, sure, I'll take that number all day. I have a local radiology place by me that um, I have direct contact with the radiologist 16 hours a day, anytime I need to speak with him or any of his colleagues. Plus, um, rather than an MRI of your knee being $1,200 list price, it's $400. And everybody's happy. The radiology place can stay in business. They don't have to do all the billing, coding, and have denials and diagnosis codes and things and reasons for things being denied. And everybody's happy. And the patient gets the results that they want in a timely fashion. But the patient, if they have insurance, isn't going to want to do that because the insurance is only going to charge them $100 for for that. 
Right. So, so here, so here's the funny story with that. So if somebody, let me just take a patient, uh, a sample patient comes in and says, Hey, you know, I was playing basketball with younger people, always a bad idea to play with younger folks, but I was playing basketball with younger people and I twisted my knee and I want an MRI for my knee. And I'll say to the patient, well, um, let me do a physical exam. And I do an examination of the knee and I physically determine as a competent um, physician um, with sports medicine experience um, that, that there's nothing torn or violated in the knee. There's just some ligamentous um, changes. There are some muscular changes, maybe some fluid shifting and things where it's not a violation that's that's going to require a surgical expiration or something that's really dire and difficult. So I'll say to the patient, you know, you know what, you've got, you know, uh, an issue with this muscle or or this um, uh, connective tissue part, and um, I think you'll really do well with, you know, um, a little bit of rest for a day or two, um, some ice. If you want to take a little something for pain, you can try to. Um, take it a little easy, and then we want you to get involved with physical therapy. And uh, and I think you'll do well, and they'll teach you some exercise, and then you'll have those lifelong. And then the patient will say, well, yeah, but I want an MRI to make sure there's nothing wrong with it. And I'll say, well, your insurance company is going to require me to order an X-ray, X-ray, which will irradiate you and cost you a copay. Um, it won't show anything because it's a soft tissue, not a hard tissue issue, and the knee joint's not worn out. So we've determined that by exam. So that would be useless and potentially harmful to you and cost you money. Um, and the, the um, insurance company is also going to want you to have a month of PT, which was the first thing out of my mouth that I believed that you needed. So um, they'll say, oh, but I, I have insurance. I want an MRI. I want an MRI. And I'm like, okay, well, they're going to deny it. You won't get it. However, if you want, rather than that $1,200 MRI, I can get one cash tomorrow at three o'clock for $400 if you want to write a check. And they'll say, doc, do I really need the MRI? Right. <laughs> so this is what we get. Um. It's true, but but the other secret about that is it might take a year to a year and a half of gentle, normal, everyday life for things like that to recover. That um, parts of the body are relatively slow healing, but they do, and uh, you know, and and I know from personal experience and and family and so on that things heal on their own in spite of our best interests. Maybe that's what we know as, as docs anyway, and that one should be careful with them and, and favor them to the degree that, that promotes their healing, but that these kinds of injuries may not be permanent and, and don't require invasive procedures, exactly what you just said, and you just have to let them heal. You have to coax them to heal. Yeah, so there is there is some truth to that, but I'm kind of a, uh, I'm kind of an active sort of healing person. That is to say that I think there are exercises and modalities and gentle things, you know, just kind of like when you have a stomach problem or something, you don't throw instant bad food on it, uh, difficult, challenging stuff. You might start with fluids first and then kind of scale up a little bit. Um, same thing with. Uh, with joint injuries, um, musculoskeletal injuries, you know, for example, that it's it's a good idea 
to take it a little easy. But let me give you an example, because you had said, you know, it might take a year, year and a half. Well, that's true. But obviously, you don't want to sit around because, you know, anybody that uh, that doesn't move for 30 days will probably blood clot and die. And that's no, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm not saying to immobilize it. I'm I'm saying yeah, just not yeah. to not to strain it excessively, not to go out and play basketball again with it for a while. Right, right. Especially with young people, that's that's always a problem. Uh, <laughs> you know, not not the young people, but the fact that we're all not young anymore. Right. But interesting on the same topic. You know, uh, an older person, you know, may be following those thoughts and say, you know, what, my shoulder hurts. I'm just not going to use it for a while. And then they go maybe three to six months without using it. Come to find out with the shoulder joint, um, it uh, it's become frozen. That to right, say you, that all you of can't the- not use a shoulder <laughs> joint if you're living normal life. I mean, I'm saying one should live normal life, but not not aggressively do things with the joint to the degree that you're getting more pain from doing that than not you know i think many of these things are basically ligament and tendon strains and in that lead to inflammation that you can treat the inflammation if you like but that these inflammatory responses do ameliorate over time they heal over time they return to normal by and large within normal limits and you know even small tears will will do the same thing um and you just don't want to make them tear bigger by being aggressive that's all i'm not saying not to use them i think you of course you have to use all the parts of your body in regular ways that the body was meant to be used just not to overly stress them while they're healing right well i i appreciate that clarification because i think originally that wasn't clear but i think you've made that abundantly clear and thank you for doing that because you know i didn't want anybody sitting around waiting for amazon to deliver their you know painless knee you know for weeks and weeks <laughs> what do you think we've been doing working from home for the last three and a half years oh dear god please <laughs> i I've, I've gone into work um we did a little bit of telemedicine for a while and certainly for in the early days of covid um uh, before we really understood it well and you know after we understood it well and knew that there were early treatments that we could use that uh, really worked well previous to the government saying anything would work. You know, the, they had their, um, uh, you know, they used to say benign neglect, but I think, you know, the, the government didn't uh, emphasize and organized medicine didn't emphasize benign neglect. I think it was malignant neglect when someone right. has an infection. Neglect is never benign. That's right. No, no. So, you know, so that's, um, you know, some of the little tips and tricks, you know, to find yourself a physician. The other thing I think that's important um, from my perspective anyway, you know, exercising daily as I do, having a vegetable-based lifestyle as I do, drinking water as my primary beverage as I do, um, trying to, you know, um, early to bed, early to rise, healthy, wealthy, and wise, and all that stuff. Um, you know, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper. Um, also, you know, trying to stack more of your calories early on. So you've got a good chance to to burn them off. Um, but the th- one thing that I, you know, that is sometimes questionable that but that I try to get patients into the model of patients that come to my practice, um, we usually do a yearly um, health physical and a year is like a good passage of time where, you know, someone's life may have changed. They may have, you know, got a different job. They may have a new child or a child may have left the house or, you know, they may have a new marriage or, or, or 
unfortunately lost an old marriage or or just some things have changed um, or their stress level has changed and now they're eating differently. Um, I think it's a good idea to do some screening tests. So we kind of at a year, we like to have somebody come in um, for what I call a health maintenance assessment or a well physical, if you will, in the conventional language and spend some time with the patient, go over their history, follow up on their family, you know, their social connections, you know, some of their uh, risk factors you know, how are their parents doing? How are their brothers and sisters doing? Looking at family history. And then, you know, does the patient have any concerns? And then if not, do I have any concerns? I mean, am I noticing that they're 50 pounds overweight or they, they're, you know, making some noise when they breathe or some things that I detect on physical exam, they have a heart murmur that nobody's ever noticed before. You know, there's different kinds, I mean, have are their feet flat even? And, you know, and that's caused knee pain or hip pain or back pain or headaches. And nobody ever looked to see if their feet were flat or not because there's a ton of things we can do for that. So um, I'll also try to do things preemptively. That is to say, when someone, when I see somebody for a sick visit, I do what's called opportunistic prevention. And that is to say, you know, hey, you're here for a sick visit. We're going to take care of the sick thing. We're going to help you get well and give you, you know, what the keys are to the kingdom. Plus, right. as long as you're here, we it, might as well check it, these other things too. That's right. Yeah. So we also, you know, we'll say, okay, well, you know, it's time for your colonoscopy. Let me give you a script for that. Um, you know, you haven't had a mammogram and I'm doing your GYN if I'm doing it um, or what have you. Plus, um, people usually leave my office. I mean, even with a, a cold with a lab form to check some of the vital parameters, you know, cholesterol, sugar, liver function, uh, kidney function, um, you, you know, thyroid, vitamin D? vitamin D level. Religiously, I check vitamin D. And by the way, um, vitamin D, I mean, I, I don't know a lot about its physical assay, but some of the major labs, which I won't name, charge like $250 to do a vitamin D, which is absolutely ridiculous. So make sure not to get caught up in the whole insurance game because there's a diagnosis code E55.9, which means low vitamin D. And if your physician doesn't use it, the insurance company bonks it and you get a $250 bill after well, this six is catch 22. How would the physician know it's low until it's been tested? Correct. Exactly catch 22. Um, you know, a, another a great literary work for sure, um, which taught us a lot about our human frailty, I would say. But anyway, so that's that. But But if you know you're going to need it, well, shop at a lab that's going to give you a reasonable price, a good result, get your results to you and to your physician in a timely fashion. And we even um, have a small lab in the Northeast by us that uh, there's a, a woman who's a private contractor and she works with the lab. She'll actually come to your house. She starts her day at four in the morning. And when she came to draw my family, she was there for a 6.30 appointment at 6.20 sitting outside saying, whenever you're ready, guys, let me know. That's pretty good. Well, I, you know, we're plagued by by lab chains that um, make shopping around for labs a little bit difficult here in Connecticut, probably elsewhere. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, two major chains, you know, and they are what they are, but they also have some discount plans. So if you don't have insurance or you're not covered by a government program and roped into that, that 
you may be able to get a discount even with the big chains. Um, they offer those discounts. In fact, I know with one of them, if I have a lab form and I stamp this special stamp that says patient has no insurance, they can offer that. The problem is, is that Medicare and some of the other big payers, that's a government payer, um, they want to be the most favored nation. So they won't allow anybody to pay less than they pay, which is right. somewhat ridiculous. I mean, there's, there's no free market force there. I mean, we haven't had a free market in medicine for gosh, I mean, almost a century with the advent of insurance and then Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. No, I, I agree. These are um, counterproductive incentives of which we've seen during COVID a tremendously bad counterproductive incentives um, that lead to unexpected, uncalculated consequences <clears throat> of things like the costs being higher than they need to be because the government says, it's going to pay the lowest fee, and and so uh, it, it you know it makes it worse for for others uh, in order so that the the companies can keep the fee higher in order to pay the government the lowest fee. Um, there's all sorts of things like that. That that is an an outstanding point, Doctor Rish. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, in a true free market, which is something I advocate for and I've written for in medical economics for the last twenty years. Um, in a true free market, you get a choice of many different people competing for your business, competing on quality, competing on price, competing on availability, competing on um, convenience, um, and, and may the best of them win. And some people want to have convenience. Some people want to have price. Some people want to have availability. Some people are after the greatest quality. And in that way, everybody gets to pick with their own intrinsic value system, not determined by anyone else anywhere else. Well, unfortunately, with the, the idea of a free market has left us for crony capitalism for the, the, the last, I don't know how long, maybe 100 years. Um, we used to regulate crony capitalism by, uh, you know, monopoly laws, restraints of trade laws, and, and things like that. But it seems like our, the the uh, companies have gotten so large that e individual companies that aren't monopolies are still doing the same kind of conspiratorial restraints of trade that used to be the the provenance of interlocking directorates and and other monopolies. Well, anyway, we've got to uh, another commercial breakpoint, so let's be on pause for a moment. Everybody, please come back. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity.
Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Craig Wex. We were just talking about what I would say I'll call the monopolization of individual large companies. And the free market, as you put it, is more than just competition by the quality and value and opportunity and availability and other parameters of a good or service. It's also breeds the ability to interfere with your competitors because people can, can within the law, do all sorts of competitive behaviors that are not necessarily of economic, direct economic benefit, but undermine the economic, economic benefit of your competitors. And that still happens within the free market and it, I think economists would have a lot of trouble trying to regulate that because then that cripples a large part of the free market and you have to take the bad with the good. And so there are trade-offs in all this. The, the free market, to my thinking, is theoretical. The real world is not. And how well we can make the marketplace a free play, you know, level playing field is what we should strive for. And it's been dramatically tilted over COVID and probably for a lot longer than I know as well. Well, one of the issues I think that that you're you're now coming to is, you know, we can make equality where we can all start at the same place. However, some will work harder, some will work longer, some can't work at all, some won't work at all, some will work differently, some will work with other people. So you can't have equality of outcome. You can have equality of of start, but you can't have equality of outcome because there is so much diversity. You know, be, people talk about diversity, but it, it's it's important to note that you know everybody deserves the right to try anything or do anything. However, everybody isn't guaranteed a success. I mean, you know, there's there's hard work involved, there's luck involved, there's timing involved, there's, you know, who you might have gone to school with involved. I mean, there's a lot of things that go on in this real world. And, you know, it's like with your health, you know, the government can't legislate healthy people. It's not possible. You can't it do it through hospitals. Yeah, it tries. Yeah, mandating right. vaccines is, is, is exactly doing that. Yeah, well, unfortunately, they, you know, we could go on for a whole other hour because unfortunately, they, 
they picked the, the, the wrong protein, they picked the wrong mechanism, they picked the wrong delivery system, they picked the wrong way to study it, they picked the wrong timing, they picked the wrong everything. And it's just, it's baffling to me how it's gotten as far as it has, hurting as many people as it has, without the people rising up saying, stop, we want a different Well, I everything. think they have. I think you see that's why there's only 7% uptake of the most recent um, version of, of the COVID vaccines. But I'm talking about many of the other vaccines. You know, the childhood vaccines, a number of them are not against transmissible illnesses. Tetanus is not a, an interpersonally transmitted illness. Rabies is not an, uh, an right. illness. There's, there's a bunch of of different illnesses that we vaccinate children for that really, I mean, you might rationally think it's a good idea to choose to get those vaccines, but the government should not be compelling vaccines that are not transmittable. There's no government well, you know, I, I, I think the government shouldn't, I mean, I'm somewhat libertarian in my thought on that, that the government shouldn't be legislating or demanding or mandating anything with regard to your health. I think if different bodies want to suggest things, like if the CDC or FDA wants to suggest things that in its, you know, body of knowledge or what have you, wants to suggest things, I think that's fine. I mean, had this whole mRNA thing been what it was supposed to be, which was a an optional, individualized experiment with seniors in nursing homes, it would have proven itself to be absolutely the wrong thing at the wrong time with the wrong mechanism on the wrong day. And I think that we would have not had the gross worldwide harm and strife that we've had with all of the side effects and problems and families divided. And, you know, I mean, we could, again, get into the weeds on this, but my, my overall thought, and I think it goes to your point with vaccines, all vaccines, and, and the mRNA is not really a vaccine. So when you have to change the meaning of a word twice in order to get it to fit, it isn't. So you can't redefine English in that way and expect to be respected. So shame on the FDA and the CDC and the, the NIH and all of the other initial organizations to try and redefine English to fit whatever their agenda is. Having, uh, having said all of that, each individual medical intervention, whether it's a vaccine or um, anything, a medicine, has to have informed consent. You have to understand what it's intended to do. You have to understand what its side effects could be. You have to understand what its costs are. You have to understand what alternatives exist. And at the end of the day, if none of that suits you, you have the ability to say no. That's correct. That, that is our un overriding ethical procedure from Nuremberg, Belmont Report, Common Rule, you know, and, and every aspect of, of medical ethics that we've had until COVID. That is correct. Right. That's that's when we flushed the uh, ethics book down the toilet. And unfortunately, we were centuries, uh, in fact, thousands of years developing that ethics book. So that's right. Well, I've know, always said that we need a code of ethics for ethicists. 
Right. Well, it's amazing. People that call themselves ethicists, I won't make any names or name any esteemed institutions, but we, uh, <laughs> you probably talked about them on your podcast in the past. I know I have. So, right. Uh, you know, it isn't just that the federal government propagandized the general public. The federal government propagandized doctors and other and people in other countries and other governments and the propaganda was so strong you know that that people fell for it and they had no independent way to confirm that it was false by and large and it propaganda well, works dr rish they led with fear and fear is a very strong motivator a very right. strong and and they're doing it again and in fact, yeah. with this whole business of, about about children are flocking to emergency rooms in China, they're, therefore, we're about to tell you we're going to lock down the, you know, North America it is, again, fear porn, fear propaganda for something yeah. that is just a, a normal wave of fall, winter respiratory infections that happens every year, that the hospitals are not filling up. The emergency rooms are filling up because in China, people use the emergency rooms for primary care. And and right. this is there's no evidence yet, even with the mycoplasma infections and flu and some COVID and common cold. And you can hear in my voice that I've got I'm coming off of a common cold as my wife is from traveling on an airplane that we got it. And, and it's around everywhere now. It's just normal part of we've forgotten that we have waves of, of common cold and flu and respiratory infections in the fall and winter through covid because we didn't everybody was stayed home lockdowns will prevent a lot of that if you don't associate with other people you're not going to transmit your colds so you know we got through most of covid with less fall winter waves and now it's coming back because we're living normal lives again yeah, no, definitely. But I think that we, we can never, ever allow, you know, the return of lockdowns or or masking or or anything else that violates, you know, an individual's right to choose and self-determine um, with informed consent. So, well, the you know, I have to I have to raise a theoretical possibility that sure. things that people do that can do harm to others intentionally or unintentionally, the government has an interest in protecting others from such harms. Now, again, you have to weigh the reality of this, the real world reality of this, the degree of harm, the degree of you know invasiveness of the government position, and so on. And in COVID, it was all misrepresented, grossly overstated, and, and fear-mongered in order to allow much greater government inter intervention than anything that would have been warranted. But there well, the, is at least a theoretical discussion about this in public health. Sure. Well, the thing and about honestly, emergencies, I mean, think about an emergency in your home. You're planning a vacation. You're going to buy something. You're going to do something, what have you. And all of a sudden, your roof leaks. Well, guess what? You declare an emergency. You take the money that was meant for the trip. Instead, you use it to fix the roof. Maybe you stay home from work and you lose some income there. And maybe you fix it yourself because you can't afford to have somebody come do it. So an emergency gives you a couple of things. One is power over the situation to change circumstances and your schedule. Two is it gives you access to money. Now, it may be yours. It may be the family's. It may be your spouse's. It could be, you know, uh, uh, your your mother-in-law's money. Your it could insurance be company's money. 
Right. Well, there's that, too. You know, and I'm all for insurance, but health insurance is no longer by definition insurance. It's prepaid health care profiteering. So to return to that topic, that that no longer <laughs> exists after the Unaffordable Careless Act of 2010, where everything was redefined and prepaid and, you know, True catastrophic insurance, as you were saying, um, should be around to be available for that. And little things like family doctor visits or trips to the laboratory or small things. You know, it's almost like um, when I interviewed um, Dr. Ben Carson um, previously, when he was uh, even a candidate for uh, a primary for president, um, we had talked about his experience as a neurosurgeon. And uh, I had talked about insurance a little bit. And I had mentioned that you know, catastrophic insurance is a tool that you put out a small amount of money that only pays back if there is a catastrophic loss. You pay for everything else, like car insurance, for example. And he liked that analogy. The car insurance analogy is, is you pay a set amount of money to take care of if your car gets crushed up or you crush somebody else up or whatever the circumstances are, fault state, no fault state, whatever. Um, but it does not pay to fix scratches in your paint. It does not pay to uh, fix your tires if you get a flat. And it does not tell you where to get gas or where and when to change your oil. They're all incumbent upon you because they're small costs. Because if we had car insurance that paid for all of these small things, it would make all of these determinations for us and it would cost more than the car. Well, it should be obvious that when you use a service regularly, when everybody uses it, there's no point in insuring it because the probability of using it is too high. Insurance works when the probability of use is low, but the, the cost of the thing that could happen is high. So when you multiply small probability times large cost, you get an expected value that is affordable. OK, whether it's six thousand dollars a year per person or whatever it is that that covers a million dollars that you might have to spend, but has a probability of a hundredth of a percent of actually happening. That's how you balance it out. And so when you put in 10, 20, 30 percent over that for administrative costs, it makes sense because the probability of invoking invoking that is low. But when you have a service that everybody pays for, that it, that is something that's part of normal maintenance, normal routine activity, there's no point of ensuring normal routine activity because the probability right. is high. And so you're multiplying a high probability times the cost of something and then adding on administrative costs, you're just making the cost higher than it would be if you just paid for it out of pocket normally. And that's exactly what we were talking about, why it doesn't make sense to insure regular everyday costs. Correct. If I get x-rays at an outpatient center uh, and I pay cash, I could pay maybe between $65 and $125. Now, the list price on those could be anywhere between $250 and uh, $1,100, $1,200. In fact, um, hospital facility fees often tack on $1,000 per study. And I mean, it's not an exact science, but I had talked to one hospital administrator who not only charged um, three times as much for the study as their cost, they charged 10 times as much as their list price that they charged everybody. And that even included their self-pay people because they just charged everybody the same exorbitant fee. 
including facility fee. If you if you look up facility fee in medical economics, you'll see some really great articles, I think, on how much hospitals overcharge people and why anybody tolerates it. Well, I don't it's know. supply and demand. You know, people don't know that they can shop around, especially in an emergency. You don't know that you go to the closest hospital. You don't know that you could or should shop around. That's part of the problem. And that gives hospitals an advantage for, for doing that. Plus, they well, all do it. You never want to buy a car in an emergent situation. You want to do the research first. Right. Right. It's true. But not a, not everybody's got that opportunity for hospitals, especially when time matters. You know, the, the critical. True, but but it, that it's important to be cognizant of your of your situation. And, you <clears> know, back to that family physician. If you have a family physician, you know, if uh, some one of my patients calls me and after hours and I don't charge for that per se, they call, call me after hours and say, hey, I got this emergency and this and that and the other. What would you do? Would you wait till tomorrow to see you? Would you go to an urgent care? Would you um, come right in? Would you go to X hospital or Y hospital or Z hospital? You know, um, all of those things. I mean, use the talent that you've got and the relationship that you've paid for. Now we have the point where there's too many choices. And it used to be you had your plan and you could rely on it and it was expensive, but you managed. And now with all these direct pay and, and other things, including, you know, the wellness company that I, I'm working with, that there's a lot of choices and people were, you know, going to kind of experiment around and see what works for them. And uh, during experimental times, there's a little more chaos and unsettled activities. But on the other hand, it, these things tend to converge over time and hopefully evolve for better knowledge and, and that the system evolves to better serve people because it's in economically the system will make more money when it serves people better at least in theory and yeah no, i would agree with that i'm 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 a fan of uh you know austrian economics from that standpoint and all of the great folks like uh von mises and uh hayek and uh, on all those great folks well that's good well so um we've actually run out of time for today so I hope everybody's enjoyed these discussions. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. And Craig, thank you for some really great discussions. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And come back next week. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dr. Rish. I appreciate the opportunity to be there. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, I'm on social media at Dr. Craig Wax, spelled all out. My health care website is healthisnumber1.com spelled in words. Thank you again and a pleasure to be with you, Dr. Rich. Great.